So we'll start the second talk on the Metta Sutta um, by going back to finish the very, very first story that I was speaking about in the last talk. And it was, it's one of the stories about how uh, the Buddha came to teach Metta, right? So to remind us where we were in the story is this. There was a group of monks, they were on a long retreat, they were practicing concentration, they thought they'd found the perfect spot, right? And then it turned out that their spot that they were meditating in was actually inhabited by unseen beings, whether we want to call them devas or tree spirits or angels, the unseen energies, who felt a little territorial and did a lot of things to scare the monks away. The monks were scared away. They went down and said, Buddha, teacher, this is the wrong place to meditate. And what did the Buddha say? He said, friends, this is a perfect place to meditate. You got to go right on back. I got the perfect practice for you, loving kindness. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. And so we took that whole journey about the ethics um, part, uh, the basic integrity part of the sutta. Here's what happened next. We don't actually know the exact instructions that the Buddha gave for loving kindness. We do see in the sutta the line, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Through the generations, from teacher to student to teacher to student, the basic essence of those flavors gladness, safety, ease, has been passed down all the way to us. And so whatever he said, that was some part of it, probably, although we'll never know for sure. And the monks, very reassured by having gotten some guidance from their teacher, went back up into the foothills of the Himalayas and continued their concentration practice. In this case, the concentration practice of collecting the mind and heart around goodwill and friendliness. What happened? This is a very important part of the story in terms of our own journey here. And it's why I waited to tell it until we are at this point in the retreat. So what happened was they radiated this metta, this loving kindness. Maybe they used phrases. I bet actually that they didn't, although I'll never know. There's this sense of radiating goodwill and friendliness to that which scared them, to that which could have held back their practice or could have completely disrupted or led them to abandon their practice. We have all experienced something like this here. I have so much respect for your courage in meeting the things that can hold up and even hypothetically could make you abandon your practice and you stayed. You stayed with friendliness. They stayed with friendliness. And the next thing that happened were those very same devas or tree spirits were so impacted by the force of the radiation of this loving kindness that not only did they stop producing scary sounds, stinky smells, and terrifying images in the minds of these monastic practitioners, but they actually became the practitioner's allies. The very thing that could have taken them out became transformed through the loving kindness into their allies. This is what we're doing here. When we are bringing the metta to the sadness, to the doubt, to the fear, to the self-judgment, to that which can knock us off our seat, Um, There is this great potential, and so many of you have already been sharing it in moments and experiencing it in moments where the very thing that we thought was a problem actually becomes our ally. It becomes what makes us stronger in moving forward with this practice. So, tonight, we will be talking about the rest of the sutta, Um, from wishing and gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. The whole meditation component, um, so the basket uh, that's sometimes called samadhi or the meditation component, and then the panya or the wisdom component, which is the very last stanza.
And just like with the last talk, um, it would be a lot longer talk than any of us could tolerate to attend to every single line and detail. So brush strokes and themes. Wanted to give us a reminder for those of us who are interested in these things uh, and resources, perhaps further study after the retreat, uh, the material that I was using to inform this. Uh, firstly, that our Metta Sutta translation comes from Amarvati Monastery in England, in the Thai Force tradition. And then the first commentary I'm using comes from Ayakema, the first uh, fully ordained bhikkhuni or nun. Uh, Westerner in our tradition. She's passed on now, but it has some wonderful, wonderful books and material. And then the second commentary is from Venerable Buddha the founder of Mahabodhi Society in India. So we're going to start with metta for all beings. We're going to start big. And I think it would be lovely uh, as we did the other night, to read a little bit of it together. So maybe we could read from the part that says wishing just to the end of that left side of the page. So not not the entire right side. That comes later. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Does that make you smile when you read that? A little bit? I know it's difficult person day. So some of us have had one of those days. Thank you for um, engaging the depth of that practice and how difficult it can be and how delightful it can be in moments. So ways to practice metta for all beings. Whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, an interesting alternative translation to this. Because when I first read it, I thought, you know, physically weak or strong, psychologically weak or strong, what? Uh, Another translation of weak or strong is actually all those who are are mature on the spiritual path and all those who are immature on the spiritual path. Which I think is interesting because... It happens sometimes when we're on the spiritual path that we can get a little bit on our high horse of people who aren't quite as progressed as we are, right? And it's like, oh, everybody, omitting none, wherever we are on the spiritual path, may we be at ease in gladness and in safety. The seen and the unseen. So, of course, this includes the devas, if you happen to believe in them or have a relationship with them, the unseen energies. But also, um, tomorrow we're going to be moving into the practice of expanding this metta for all beings. And one of the ways that I work with the seen and the unseen in that is um, at the end or even at the beginning of metta for all beings, I'll send metta to those who are unseen or who are forgotten. Or at the end of the practice, I'll send metta to all of those that I didn't particularly think of, and I'll just take the whole group of those I didn't particularly think of and send it out. You know, the seen and the unseen. Because whenever we're expanding wider, there's always places that out of habit, uh, we place more attention in places that are less. However, in the end, Wherever we send the metta for all beings is standing in for all beings. So we don't have to stress ourselves out that we have to think of not just the 7 billion human beings on the planet. What about the countless animal beings? It it gets a little bit intense. So we trust that where we're sending it uh, is for everyone. And we can also send it to those who are unseen or left out in terms of groups. 
so too with those living near and far away. We can send metta to different places on the planet. I often do in my metta practice, just thinking about places on the planet today that need extra blessings. And we'll do that tomorrow. We can also send it to groups of people on the planet. So some of the groups I send to, it's not hugely traditional, but just to kind of get your juices flowing. Hmm, wonder how I would do it. I like to send to all those being born and all those dying right now. We don't have to wait. How about right now? Some of you, your phrases are still going while you're listening to the talk. There's no pressure to do that. (laughs) It's advanced practice. But it's like, I might say something about some group, and you just notice, oh, there's warmth in that direction. That's it. You know, all parents, all children, all elders, all those celebrating something right now, and all those who are grieving. Those are a few places I send a lot of metta to. You'll have your own places. We need all of us to be moving this through and out uh, so that it touches all, all of our expressions. So metta for all beings is inclusive, not just for our human realm, but also for the realm of the animal beings, all sentient beings, all beings with consciousness. So sometimes I'll send it to animals in the sky or animals underground or animals in the waters, those that walk along the earth. And one of the most powerful practices I wanted to share with you, it's a, it's a community practice, uh, but for me, actually comes from Joanna Macy, who is one of our great local elders. She lives here in the Bay Area. And for those of you that in your lives you're involved right now or or maybe in the future in direct action, you know, this is somebody that you might want to track down. Her writings or especially if you live in the Bay Area in person um, because, you know, she's advanced in age now, but she's still teaching. So she has this wonderful ritual and it's called the Council of All Beings. I want to share in her words what this is about. The Council of All Beings is a communal ritual in which participants step aside from their human identity and speak on behalf of another life form. A simple structure for spontaneous expression, it aims to heighten awareness of our interdependence in the living body of earth and to strengthen our commitment to defend it. The ritual serves to help us acknowledge and give voice to the suffering of our world. It also serves in equal measure to help us experience the beauty and the power of our interconnectedness with all life. And I've participated in these rituals and they're, for me anyway, they're magical. They allow us to step outside that small, limited sense of self and me and actually step into another's shoes one that is an animal being on the planet. And while we can't know exactly what they would express if they had words, we can tap into that universal level. What is it like to be in another's shoes? So inclusive. Then we have the next stanza. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. That's what you've been doing today. That's what you've been doing, working with metta for the difficult person. And so I wanted to talk a little bit more about that practice and perhaps add some tools or or possibilities that you could uh, take it into the future of your practice. I want to talk about it from the perspective of the mind, the heart, and the body. So firstly, the mind. And I'm sure you've noticed your mind in relation to the difficult person, right? You start to rehearse and rehash and explain and bargain and figure it out. And anybody done this today? Yeah, I've certainly done it. Matter for the difficult person. 
So the mind, I want to start with one of my favorite quotes about this from Pema Chodron. She says, others will always show you exactly where you are stuck. They say or do something and you automatically get hooked into a familiar way of reacting, shutting down, speeding up, or getting all worked up. When you react in the habitual way, with anger, greed, and so forth, it gives you a chance to see your patterns and work with them honestly and compassionately. Without others provoking you, however, you remain ignorant of your painful habits and cannot train in transforming them into the path of awakening. Thank you, Pema. We know that. We know that now. So one of the purifications that can come up in the mind around this is the experience of the conflicted mind. Uh, it's, it's really a mind that's not happy. It's like, I am not happy. May I be happy? And so for me, depending on the degree of difficulty of the difficult person I'm working with, I've found it really helpful to send a set of metaphrases to them and then one to me, and then one to them, and then one to me. And at some point, if I do it long enough and the conditions are there for this grace, the whole thing starts to merge. At some point, I'm not even completely clear whether I'm sending it to them or to me, and it doesn't matter. So sometimes when those kind of stories come up in the mind when we're working with uh, the difficult person, although it can come up with any of the muses, uh, this piece about uh, using the mindfulness practice, the insight practice, to be really clear, what's the headline of the story? So we're talking about a process level rather than a content level. The headline of the story is blaming. The headline of the story is guilt. The headline of the story is I'm not sure. The headline of the story is getting easier. So many headlines there could be and probably were today. Another support on the level of the mind is remembering our universality. (laughs) So I'll give you a a silly little story of how this first came up for me or at least one of the, the early experience of this for me. I was sitting a retreat that officially was an insight retreat, but I was doing loving-kindness practice, which is very common in my history of practice because 50% of my practice has been Brahma Vihara almost from the beginning, so these last 20-plus years. So I've sat a lot of insight retreats where I'm the meta person in the closet. (laughs) Nobody knows I'm doing it. And so I was sitting there minding my own business, And there was just one of those breathers nearby. I'm sure nobody's experienced anyone breathing loudly and had a sensitivity. It was only me, right? I'm the only one that's ever experienced that. I hope not. (laughs) Then I would feel self-conscious. But I know it's not true because different retreats I teach, people come in and tell me about the people breathing around them. So it's an issue. Okay, let me be aware of this. Let me extend some friendliness to the sound, to where it's coming from, to me. And at some point in extending friendliness, I realize that the person that's breathing loud is me. (laughs) (laughs) These things happen. (laughs) These things happen. And it's like, oh, this is the universality. I have been the one that's breathed loud. You have been the one that's breathed loud. And on and on and on, fill in your own blank. Really helps with the self-judgment. How could I have dropped the fork in the dining hall? Well, today I was the one that wore the mantle of dropping the fork in the dining hall. And tomorrow it'll be somebody else. And next retreat it will be somebody else. We start simple like that so that we can bring it out into much more powerful arenas of universality. Another uh, helpful piece is a practice that I call turn it around. And turning it around means being open to the possibility of seeing it from the difficult person's side. It doesn't mean condoning any unskillful action. It just means if we know a little bit about them, we say, you know, if I had those particular conditions and that particular upbringing and this and that and the other, how would it be for me? And usually what comes out is, that would be hard. 
And there's just a moment of compassion before we go back into, but, you know, when they disrespected me, it was really, and the answer is yes, it was really. And then we come back around and go, yeah, and, you know, when have I disrespected somebody? So then we're back in universality. We drop down into the heart, the mood of the conflicted heart. So the fear, the rage, the sadness, the grief, the numbness. And what we need there is may I be at ease. May I be at ease. May I be at ease. So we're working with emotions here and we've all been working with emotions. It can be really helpful in the pacing of the metaphrases if we're still using them to take that pregnant pause at the end of a cycle or a cycle of words if we're using words uh, and just to check this is the emotion on a process level, not the story, not the content so much, but like it's sadness and dropping down into the body and going, okay, can I take a breath with this sadness? How does it feel? That is a friendly act of mindfulness metta. And it really helps to um, give space for what's there so that what's there doesn't start running the show. It's where the compassion practice comes in. It's where when I'm practicing, (laughs) I put a hand on the heart and I put a hand on the guts because for me the suffering, the pain, of being a human being, it just needs a handle on the guts as well. And I breathe and I might take just a few moments to say, Heather, you're in pain. Or honey, I'm in pain, I care. I care about this pain through the caring, may the pain be eased. I care, I care, I care. It's the heart. There are times for me when the metta feels like not quite the right flavor. And sometimes in that moment, it's compassion that's the most authentic flavor. Just naming that because inevitably in a group this large, it'll be another one of the Brahma Viharas that is your doorway in. And for me, it was actually compassion that was my doorway into metta. The metta didn't become fully alive in my being or in my practice until a teacher said to me, Heather, it sounds like you're in a tremendous amount of pain. And I was. My early years of practice, um, I was dealing with chronic pain in my body from a car accident, and I was dealing with a broken heart from issues of family of origin. I was in pain. And they said, maybe compassion. It was in room two. (laughs) I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget what I felt in my body when they said it. My face lit up, my body expanded, and it was like, yes. That's it for me. That's why I share it with you. It's not about which one. In the end, they're all the same. The same way as one of the muses for you has been your muse this week, and you go back to it over and over when it's starting to feel clunky. You know, maybe it was yourself, maybe it was your benefactor, maybe it was your good friend, any of them. You know, we use the resources that speak to us. Uh, Another piece I really like to bring in is uh, gratitude and working with the heart. Let's see here if I brought this. Here it is. So, last year at this retreat, when we did the gratitude practice, and that's why I wanted to bring it back in, because... Okay, let me finish my thought. What we did after the gratitude practice was everyone wrote some things they were grateful and put it in this bell. And then we made a handout and gave it to everybody at the end. The reason that I'm bringing it back in is that there's two things going on here. One is we have this retreat every single year and there's new people every single year and you're bringing in this wonderful um, freshness and enthusiasm and you know just engaging the practice and adding to the vitality of our community. And then there's a group of people that does it year after year after year and there's a thread weaving through these years of practice. Uh, and so I wanted to bring in a thread from last year just to revisit 
some of the some of the ones people were grateful for birds chocolate sweet sleep clean sheets hugs dogs my body massages when i'm in pain my teachers socks for cold feet <laughs> the dishwashers the sweet silhouette of the oak trees on the brown hills against the blue sky. The way my body seems to bounce back despite the times I forget to be kind to it. And then the last one I'll share is this. I am grateful for life. All else is commentary. So we can shift the center of gravity out of these cycles of purification from the metta and it's a, it's a question I'll ask myself if I feel like I fell into a pit of purification, like it's just feeling, the struggle's getting big, it's getting kind of difficult. I'll ask myself, okay, that's true, and can I think of something I'm grateful for? And sometimes the mind goes, I don't want to think about something I'm grateful for. <laughs> and I go, yeah, that makes sense. And is there anything you're grateful for? Yeah. There's a way we can include the layers of resistance in the friendliness, and then shift the center of gravity out of the pit and into something that would actually maybe enliven, um, create some space to be with what is. It's not avoiding anything. The body. So with the body, uh, a really important piece we're working with is getting to know our defensive patterns and letting the body be the teacher. For so many of us, either now or at various times in our practice, the body is the teacher. And so the phrase that comes out of that for me is, may I be protected and safe. May this body be protected and safe. Because the thing is, I'm sure you've noticed this, you can say, may I be protected and safe all day, or your version of it. But if the body itself the nervous system itself is highly anxious or highly activated. It's sending off signals to the mind saying, it's not safe, it's not safe. And we're saying, may I be safe? And it's saying, it's not safe. And that creates a conflict and a disconnect. So how do we bring these two together? A few ways we can start to bring these two together, really including this subtle body, this nervous system, whose very function is to keep us safe on a certain level in the practice. And uh, I shared a little bit about this in response to a question the other morning. But I'm going to say it again, because I think we need to hear it again and again and again. One of the pieces is grounding. I take so much heart in the fact that when Siddhartha sitting under that bow tree in Bogaya, India, being rocked by every single thing that was in the way of his 100% freedom, came and bombarded his system. I trust that he took his hand and put it on the earth. There's like deep genetic wisdom there. And said, the earth is my witness to my right to be free in this moment. My sincerity is enough. Your sincerity is also enough. So whether you're actually putting your hand on the earth and being that bold, and I'd encourage you if you feel inspired to be that bold. Now that I've said it, if you do it, nobody will think you're odd. They'll think, oh, they're just trying out that thing Heather said in her Dharma talk. Maybe it's actually going out on the earth. And some of us here have been, uh, for various different reasons, doing simple ritual on the earth. Because the land here is one of our teachers. And this grounding of the system, the earth itself is a power greater than ourselves. And we can take refuge there if it inspires us to take refuge there. And it starts to settle the nervous system in a certain way. It's not immediate, it's not a quick fix, it's an invitation to the system to settle. So then we have cherishing all beings. 
even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So I know from teaching this retreat for many years that for some of us every year, this is a very, very potent stanza. And it has been for me. And so as I was sitting with the stanza and looking at the commentaries and the translations and all of this, really the deepest question that arose in me was, how do we cherish living beings? How? How do we do this? So just a few reflections. And I really invite that to be an open question so that you can mine your own wisdom about how you do this. What came up for me as I was reflecting and practicing with this and preparing for this was um, just basically my first thought after I asked the question was we start with the child who is right in front of us. And I think what I meant by that is this intuitive impulse that we have when the mind isn't startled or angry or confused to reach out and cherish. And then I had this old memory that I hadn't thought about in I don't even know how long. Because one of the questions in terms of uh, sharing some reflections with you is, what about those of us that haven't physically given birth? I've step-parented, but I haven't physically given birth. And um, we're not all capable of physically giving birth. So what about that? And then this old memory came to me, um, 19 years old. So at that point, I had been meditating for two years. And I was very much in um, low-grade chronic pain uh, from this car accident. And at that time, I was a preschool teacher. I was actually supposed to be an elementary school teacher my whole life. That was my original training. And I put a lot of time and energy into it. And, and then I had this big problem, which was I was so impassioned with the Dharma and, and all the long retreats, the one month, the two month, the three month, were all during the school year. And uh, I had to throw out my career and... and go, I don't know, (laughs) what am I going to do now? So this is back when I was a preschool teacher. And I was taking the kids for a walk this one day. And we were walking down the street, and it was a summer day, and it was just absolutely beautiful, I remember. And they were so happy. They were so happy to just take a walk in the neighborhood. About four, five, six years old, the kids. And what happened was, was one of the kids got a little bit overly excited and, and wasn't orienting to their physical environment the way that young kids can do when they're overly excited. And just like burst out into the street as a car was coming down the street quite close. Just kind of, you know, like fell off the sidewalk. I mean, not literally fell, but just kind of burst off the sidewalk. And it's just so fast. We don't need to be a parent. I reached out and I grabbed that child. I threw out my back, took a year and a half to recover, <laughs> you know, and it just didn't matter. There are times when we actually respond that intensely to living beings, the one in front of us or on a much larger level. And those of us that are doing work with big communities on large levels, you know, it's, it's bigger than us. And I th- really thought about telling that story because I thought, well, the point of the story wasn't that I threw out my back, although it didn't feel authentic to leave it out because that is actually what happened. And sometimes metaphorically, we do throw out our back. And then I had the opportunity to take care of the original injury from the car accident at a level that I hadn't given myself permission to do. And I think it had a lot to do with that injury completely healing a few years later. So I'm telling you a personal story that's highly content-oriented, but I'm holding it very metaphorically. Sometimes we actually go too far And then out of that, we have the opportunity to see what actually needs to be the appropriate response, inner and outer. It happens that way sometimes. The child in front of us. We cherish all living beings by seeing them. 
And for me, um, that's been a really important part of my recent um, journeys and periods of time living in Asia these last five years. I actually realized at the end of this last trip that in the last five years, I've spent a cumulative year of time living in India and Nepal and Thailand. I hadn't realized that it added up so much. But that's fairly new for me. Um, when I was younger, uh, I needed to be in deep retreat more than I needed to be traveling. I didn't have the resources to do both. Um, when we move out of our comfort zone, whether our comfort zone is coming to Spirit Rock for the first time, whether our comfort zone is uh, socializing or engaging in a community, in our neighborhood even, where we don't usually, things expand. We see things that we might not normally see. And what kind of attitude are we going to bring to that seeing? And so for me, the metta practice, the Brahma Vihara practice, is a primary practice moving around in Asia to really let myself see and not turn away and be kind when I do want to turn away and I do turn away. So I'll tell you a story about seeing. <laughs> this is a story that's been inspiring me. And I went around the internet a couple years ago. Uh, it's about a, a South African woman who lives in, uh, where does she live? Johannesburg. She's the owner of a small business, and she's the mother of a girl who at the time of the story was eight, so she should be about maybe 10 or 11 now. And this woman was about to have her 38th birthday. And this is the story. Her birthday is July 28th. And so she decided, uh, being South African, that between Nelson Mandela Day, which is July 18th, and her 38th birthday, which was July 28th, she would do 38 acts of kindness. Part of the reason that I'm mentioning this, I want to be completely transparent, is I know of at least three of us in this room right now who um, have a birthday soon or even on the retreat. But there's three of us who are women who are about to turn 40. So happy birthday. And I bet there are others that are about to turn something or just turn something. So it's like, oh, I was really inspired by this practice. And maybe you will be too. So she decided to do 38 acts of kindness. Um, Actually, one of the things that she did that I didn't write down that I'm remembering as I'm about to share this was every single time she would go in a public restroom, she carried in her purse um, a pack of Post-its and a pen. And every single time she'd go in a public restroom, she'd put a Post-it on the mirror and the sign would say, you are beautiful. That's meta. It's like seeing... We don't always look at ourselves kindly in the mirror in public restrooms. It'd be nice to see a little post-it, you are beautiful. Here's another way. She learned, uh, she, she um, traveled quite a distance across the city for her work in her small business, which was a bakery. And so she started learning people's names on the street, uh, especially people that lived on the street, and actually making a point of greeting them by name every day. She would leave for work a little bit early so that she had the time to greet them by name every day. And what she said is, when I greet them, usually it makes their face light up, which makes my face light up. That's it. And then I was remembering, you know, it's so easy to send phrases. May all beings be well and happy. May all beings be warm. And um, she said that she and her daughter decided to sew caps uh, for some of the children that lived on the streets that they may be warm. May you be warm. May you be warm. May you be warm. Here's a cap so that you can be warm. This is how we move from the heart into an appropriate response. Really inspiring. So a few ways that we can cherish all living beings. Yet one more way is moving from the foreground to the background with beings. So sometimes we need to bring ourselves to the foreground in terms of our deeper intention to cherish living beings. 
We actually need ourselves in the foreground and to fill that reservoir so that it can overflow and cherishing living beings can then be in the foreground and we can move back and forth in our practice and in our work in the world. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded. I love how big it is. It's so much bigger than me. It's so much bigger than us. So some traditional techniques for practicing metta for all beings. Uh, one of them is the, the radiating metta. Some of you have already been doing this. It's the sense that metta is moving out from us, whether it's warmth or light or some other visceral feeling in all directions. In the tradition, there's actually 528 modes of radiation. So there's absolutely no pressure. We could not do it wrong because our intention is sincere. And even though traditionally, you know, it'll be sent north and northwest and northeast and all the rest and above and below. And the first time I practiced that here, it was like, what direction is northeast? Where am I? (laughs) And then I just realized it doesn't matter what direction northeast is. It's just expanding. It's just expanding. So this is from Venerable Buddha his commentary. When the mind breaks the barriers existing between oneself, revered ones, beloved ones, friends, neutral ones, and hostile ones, the meditator now embarks on the great voyage of impersonal radiation, even as an ocean-worthy ship voyages through the vast and measureless ocean, nonetheless maintaining a root and a goal as well. This is big. And the result, oh, there's one sutta I want to share with you about that before I get to the result. And it's a sutta I learned as a chant, so I'll share it with you as a chant because I'm not sure I could actually say it without chanting it. It goes like this. I will abide pervading one corner of the mind with loving kindness, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That's it. That's it. And the result of that is freed from hatred and ill will. We actually start working with the deepest roots of our tendencies and we have moments of freedom some of us here and this is true every metta retreat are are having what i lovingly call a judgment retreat (laughs) if we really really engage these kind of practices it's gonna come up not all the time but it's just gonna come up and yet Have there not been moments when the judgment was not in the foreground and the aversion for the judgment that even still is in the foreground is not there? We're being freed from hatred and ill will. And as we're freed for the hatred and ill will, whether it's directed at ourselves or at others, it starts to expand also. The freedom itself starts to radiate and touch beings. So the internal... um, practice of this from Venerable Buddha is this. Absence of desire to oppress or damage, to hurt or injure, to torment, to trouble or to eliminate others. And then in the world, from the same commentary, true metta is devoid of self-interest. It evokes within a warm-hearted feeling of fellowship, sympathy, and love and grows boundless from practice. 
It overcomes all social, religious, racial, political, and economic barriers. Metta is indeed a universal, unselfing, and all-embracing love. The roots start to weaken and dissolve. And that's the potential, and we're experiencing the potential here. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, right? Are you noticing the moments of free from drowsiness? The first couple days, so many of us drowsy. Today, not as much. All postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. Freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. Maintain mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding here and now. Here. We don't have to wait. Right here. So that's the end of the meditation section. And then we move on to this last section about wisdom. And it's interesting, you know, for those of us that that have a little bit of a scholarly bent, there is some question about whether this stanza was perhaps added later. But truth be told, as a meditation practitioner, what I'm interested in is not so much that and more about here it is. We've been practicing with it and chanting with it, not just us, but thousands and tens of thousands of people for a really, really long time. And so what is there that might be supportive for us in this? We'll take a look at it. Ayakema says that this last stanza is actually the description of an arhat. Uh, And an arhat in the tradition is one who is fully free, completely free. By not holding two fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So we have hatred and ill will and their roots eradicated. We have sense desires and their roots eradicated here. But what I know is that every single moment that we're free, we're digging in the dirt, we're doing the work, every single moment that we're free, we are weakening these roots. It's not happening later. It's happening here. And it's why it's so important to not just notice the problem, but the moments of freedom. And Thich Nhat Hanh has this wonderful little line that uh, illuminates it for me. He smiles and he says, no toothache, no toothache. This is somebody who knows suffering and yet he's on the lookout for when there isn't a toothache. I love that. It's so easy to miss when the struggle ceases, when the aversion dissolves, when our teeth don't ache. But wow, when they start aching, We sure notice that, don't we? And then we start orienting towards it. Toothache goes away, little twinge that we would never even think of. Uh Uh-oh, is it another one? We do the same thing with our minds. Uh Uh-oh, is it more judgment? Is it more anxiety? Uh Uh-oh, it's the uh uh-oh mind. We need to be really friendly with it. So what I want to point to in particular with this last stanza is the by not holding to fixed views because it's been the most helpful for me. And we've been talking about it all week, uh, not holding to fixed views, this invitation into a sense of self that is less rigid, less fixed, less I know, and more what's next. So I'm going to share a teaching from the Buddha in a simple form. I also want to say that other translations of this line, by not holding to fixed views, include by not holding to wrong views and by not holding to um, wrong beliefs, just in case the language there is a little more accessible for you. From the Buddha, there is the case where an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person does not discern what ideas are fit for attention or what ideas are unfit for attention. This is how one attends 
inappropriately. And there's all these different questions. The title of the Sutta is A Thicket of Views. <laughs> was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what was I in the past? Hmm. Shall I be in the future? What shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? How shall I be in the future? (laughs) Or else one is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where have I come from? And where am I bound? So this kind of getting caught up and lost in the past and the present and the future and the main character of all of that is me creates a thicket of views. It inevitably creates a self and an other. Uh, It creates internal language like they instead of we. This is called a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a fetter of views. Bound up by this fetter, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person is not freed from birth, aging, and death, is not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. One is not freed, I tell you, from suffering and stress. So there's some traditional language there, but important. So what about well-instructed Uh, practitioners. Well-instructed practitioners discern what ideas are fit for attention and what ideas are unfit for attention. It's kind of like knowing when there's a inner insight that you just want to drink in a little bit, not obsess about it, but just drink in a little bit and just your endless storytelling. Only we can know what is fit and what isn't fit. And it's always changing. So what is fit, what isn't fit? This being so, one does not attend to ideas unfit for attention and attends instead to ideas fit for attention. One attends this way, appropriately. This is stress. This is the origin of stress. This is the cessation of stress. This is the way leading to the cessation of stress. So these are the Four Noble Truths that Sylvia was referencing this afternoon. And we start to track our experience this way. Uh, On a personal level, uh, keeping an eye on the lookout for, sometimes stress is translated suffering, different translations. Where is it? What's the cause? Where is peace possible anyway? Because we're not shooting the second arrow. And what is the path to peace? So we need to understand what the Four Noble Truths are in theory so that we can actually use it as an orienting principle of our lives, moment by moment, day after day. Oh, struggle, that's the cause of stress, and I'm totally doing it right now. Oh, so is peace possible even within this? Maybe, maybe not. Oh, it's not, can I have compassion? So that's the internal practice. Then there's the external collective practice from Dr. King. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that the edifice or the organization, the system which produces beggars needs restructuring. Both. Both. From Ayakema. This discourse of the Metta Sutta goes from the mundane states of being able and upright, straight and not proud, all the way to enlightenment in the brevity of a few verses. We first develop the heart with loving kindness to the point of loving all beings as if we were their mother, enabling us to meditate because loving kindness is one of the three pillars of meditation. Because of using this mindfulness, this meta-mindfulness, at all times, which means being in the here and now, we lose our viewpoints about self, others, and the world. Established in virtue, one gains insight, and enlightenment follows. She continues, a straightforward pathway, no deviations, augmentations, just the doing of it. 
just the doing of it. So many of the teachings that I know from the Buddha, I originally learned as songs and chants, and, and I love to sing. It's a, it's a real joyous spiritual practice for me. And while I love the Amaravati chant with three notes, because it's really easy to learn, and it includes everybody's voice register, which is extremely important to me, I actually know several different tunes to the Metta Sutta. So I wanted to close with a little bit more lively tune. I've actually been wanting to sing this to you all for some years, but I wanted to wait for a time when it was actually appropriate and not just me singing because I like to sing. (laughs) So also at the end, you don't have to, but I'd like to invite you to join me. And I'll let you know when but it'll just be this simple line, may all beings be at ease. And we'll sing it back and forth a few times so that you can really feel it moving through your own body. So the tune is from my dear friend and colleague, Kevin Griffin. When Kevin Griffin and I teach together, we don't get enough sleep because we stay up late at night and um, write songs and sing. And uh, this is some, a, a tune that he wrote, but that we've sung together many times. And so I'm just thinking of Kevin right now. Dharma teacher here at Spirit Rock. It's called the Metta Samba. <laughs> Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish every single living being. Radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. One should sustain this recollection in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. Whether they are weak or strong, omitting not a single one, the great, the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease, at ease, at ease. May they be at ease, me. May all beings be at ease, you. Me. May all beings be at ease. You. May all beings be at ease. And then all together, however you want to sing this line. May all beings be at ease. So breathe it in. All beings, not one left.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.